Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Hello, sports fans, and welcome to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we examine and relive the best moments in sports one week at a time. I'm your host, Dana Auguster, and this week we're going to be talking about, of course, the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is just a few days away, and instead of us talking about the team's players' strategy of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or the Kansas City Chiefs, I'm going to be concentrating more so on the city, the whole city, Tampa, which is hosting its fifth Super Bowl ever. And each one of those Super Bowls has a very unique place in Super Bowl history, making Tampa one of the premier locations for the Super Bowl. It has to go all the way back to 1976 with Hugh Culverhouse, who was very instrumental in bringing the NFL to Tampa, Florida. Tampa at the time was one of the fastest growing cities in the nation. And Tampa seemed like a very, very interesting place and a very good place to have a pro football team with the population of, with the popularity, I should say, of college football and high school football. So Hugh Culverhouse was a Tampa businessman and he lured the NFL to Tampa. And one of the things that he said in getting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers was first the NFL, next the Super Bowl. So he didn't have to really wait long before the NFL awarded the city of Tampa its first Super Bowl, which was to be played in January of 1984. And what a Super Bowl it was supposed to be. That year, 1984, Super Bowl 18 featured the Los Angeles Raiders taking on the Washington Redskins. And both teams had actually played earlier that year with the Redskins edging the Raiders 37-35 to at RFK Stadium. So both teams heading into this Super Bowl and a lot of prognosticators and experts said that this was going to go right down the wire just like the previous game. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way, but the game was very memorable for a performance. And that performance, of course, was from game MVP Marcus Allen. He had 191 yards to score two touchdowns, including a remarkable 74-yard touchdown run at the end of the third quarter, which pretty much broke the game open for Oakland, for the Raiders, I should say. I keep wanting to say Oakland, but excuse me on that. For the Los Angeles Raiders, as the Raiders won it 38-9, to uh, it was pretty much, wasn't even that close. The game was pretty much ended right before the half when Jack Squirrel had a pick six on Joe Theismann and just basically walked into the end zone to give the Raiders an insurmountable lead. But Marcus Allen's performance in that game put 
the Super Bowl and the city of Tampa on the map of hosting the big game. After that game, it was proclaimed that Tampa was finally, finally a big league NFL city, despite what the football team at the time was doing, which was struggling. So with Marcus Allen's performance and Tampa's showcase of the Super Bowl that year, put it on the map so the NFL was very, very excited about having another one there. They wouldn't have to wait long. By 1991, a few years later, the Super Bowl would return to Tampa. But this time, it was going to be a little bit different. For you see, in 1991, in January, the Super Bowl was kind of like the afterthought of what was going on else in the world because just the week prior to the Super Bowl was Operation Desert Storm when the United States invaded Iraq. So the, everybody's mind was elsewhere concentrating on what was going on over there as far as like what's going on, are we going to war, that type of thing. So the Super Bowl in 1991 between the Giants and Bills was basically a diversion from what was going on elsewhere. And it was very memorable within its own right. It was actually one of the best Super Bowls ever played, both exciting-wise and aesthetically, because that Super Bowl didn't have any turnovers, very few penalties, and it came right down to the wire. At the beginning of the game was also a very memorable moment when you had Whitney Houston performing one of the greatest renditions of the national anthem ever heard, coming out in her tracksuit right and wowing the fans at Tampa Stadium. But the game, of course, came down to the final seconds, final eight seconds specifically, when Scott Norwood missed the game-winning field goal, giving the New York Giants their second Super Bowl win. But the game itself was just an unbelievable diversion for a country that was looking for something else to take his mind off of what was going on else in the world. And it delivered. And Tampa was the site. Nine years later, the Super Bowl would once again return to Tampa. But instead of it being at Tampa Stadium, which was effectively known as the Big Sombrero, the Super Bowl would be in brand new Raymond James Stadium, the new home of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And that Super Bowl was memorable within itself because of a, of a performance by not an offensive player or a singer, but an ensemble of players known as the Baltimore Ravens defense. Baltimore's defense that year was one of the top defenses, not only that year, but perhaps of all time. And they'll be taking on the New York Giants which was making their third Super Bowl appearance and was something of a Cinderella story, knocking off the heavily favored Minnesota Vikings in the NFC Championship that year. It was the very first Super Bowl, as I say, was at Raymond James Stadium and Baltimore's defensive captain and all-time linebacker Ray Lewis led, led the way, garnering MVP honors as the Ravens won 34-7. The Giants was dominated defensively, matter of fact, becoming the third Super Bowl team ever not to score an offensive touchdown, joining the likes of the 71 Dolphins and the 1980 and the 1988 Cincinnati Bengals, failing to score an offensive touchdown. They did score, but it was on a punt return. So you have three games and three memorable performances, yet those three would pale in comparison to the suit to the Super Bowl that would take place 
just seven years later, Super Bowl 43 between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Arizona Cardinals. Pittsburgh was eyeing their sixth Super Bowl championship. Meanwhile, Arizona was looking for their first NFL championship since 1947. And this game, once again, played at Raymond James Stadium, would be an absolute classic. The first half with the Steelers leading 10 to 7. Kurt Warner had threw a pass into the end zone, which was intercepted by James Harrison at the goal line, and he weaved his way down the sidelines, avoiding tackle, breaking tackles all the way into the end zone to give the Steelers a 17 to 7 lead. After the Steelers gain a 20 to 7 lead thanks to a field goal, the Cardinals make a rally to take the lead late in the game on a 64-yard touchdown reception by Larry Fitzgerald. But Ben Roethlisberger and Santonio Holmes would team up for one of the greatest plays in Super Bowl history at the corner of the end zone as Santonio Holmes tapped out touchdown in the corner to give the Steelers the win and another Super Bowl championship. Once again, in Tampa. So what we have in store this upcoming week in Tampa, Florida, who's to say? But one thing is definitely for certain. Hugh Colberhouse, who was instrumental in bringing the NFL to Tampa, was right. First, the NFL, next the Super Bowl. And this week, his city and his team will be center stage at the Super Bowl. to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and just a reminder to everybody that uh, we have a number of great podcasts on our Sports History Network. One of those is Football is Family Podcast, hosted by my sports history brother from another mother, Jeremy McFarlane, and this week, his podcast features Clayton Truder, who talks about the NFL and how the sport helped heal America after certain events that took place that captured America's attention and helped and how the NFL helped move away from that. It was a great, great podcast. So if you have a chance, check him out and check out the others right here on the Sports History Network. And now this week's top five. back and right now we're going to be talking about the top five events that happened in sports history between January the 24th and January the 30th. Number five, an NBA icon comes out of retirement. Magic Johnson of the Los Angeles Lakers after taking a hiatus from basketball comes back out of retirement and scores 19 points 
and also records eight rebounds and ten assists in a 128 to 118 win over the Golden State Warriors. He will remain on the team for the remainder of the 1996 regular season. While he was there, the Lakers compiled a 22 and 16 record, yet narrowly missing the playoffs. Number four, Super Bowl 34. One of the greatest Super Bowls and probably one of the best finishes in Super Bowl history took place here in Atlanta between the St. Louis Rams and the Tennessee Titans. On the last play of the game, the game is remembered when Kevin Dyson caught a pass from Steve McNair and was dropped one yard short of the end zone that would have put the game into overtime. But Mike Jones' tackle on the one-yard line preserved the Rams' win and their first NFL championship since 1951. Number three, the opening of the first Winter Olympics in Chamonix, France. This would become a winter ritual that would be performed every four years as the Winter Olympics would become the counterpart of the Summer Olympics to be held every four years. The United States would host the Olympics four different times beginning in 1932 in Squaw Valley, California. Squaw Valley would also be the host in 1960, as well as Lake Placid in 1980. The Winter Olympics would also return to the United States in 2002 in Salt Lake City. Number two, Pete Rozelle, elected commissioner of the National Football League. In 1960, Pete Rozelle became commissioner of the National Football League and during his tenure oversaw the game's growth in popularity and size. He, was, he oversaw the merger between the American Football League and National Football League, which was the impotence of the Super Bowl. He oversaw the league grow in television revenue, teams, and was committed, in, in my opinion, the, one of the most influential commissioners we've seen over the last 60 years. So number two goes to P. Rosell. The number one event that took place in this week in sports history was the formation of the Pittsburgh Steelers dynasty. 1969, 1970, and 1974 in this week were very instrumental in the formation of the Steelers dynasty in which they became one of the most formidable teams throughout the decade of the 1970s. It all began this week in 1969 when Chuck Noll was named the Steelers head coach and he would be the Steelers coach through the 1990 season. The following year, they used the number one pick overall to draft a quarterback out of Louisiana Tech named Terry Bradshaw. He will go on to win MVP awards in Super Bowl 14, uh, 13 and 14, and as well as lead the Steelers to four Super Bowl championships in the space of six years. But perhaps the biggest addition to that team was the 1974 draft in which the Pittsburgh Steelers picked up four future Hall of Famers Two receivers, Lynn Swan out of the University of Southern California and John Starworth out of Alabama State. Also in that draft, they got middle linebacker Jack Lambert out of Kent State and longtime center Mike Webster. All four would find their way into Canton in the Hall of Fame. So that is this week's top five events of this week in history between January 24th and January the 30th. And now finally, the shout outs.
To conclude this week's show, we're going to end it with a few shout-outs going out to different players, places, and things that took place in sports history during this past week. Shout-out to Denver, 1984, the 34th All-Star Game. The Eastern Conference defeated the Western Conference 154-145. to Young guard named Isaiah Thomas was named the game's MVP, but also taking place that weekend was the very first NBA dunk contest. Larry Nance knocked off the doctor, Dr. J, in the finals to claim the very first ever NBA dunk contest. Another shout out goes to NBC. They paid $36 million in 1964 to have the exclusive broadcast rights to the American Football League. They would have that broadcast rights all the way through the duration of the league until it ended in 1969, but they would hold on to the AFC's broadcast rights all the way up until the mid-1990s. Another shout-out goes to the Dallas Cowboys, Minnesota Vikings, and Oakland Raiders, as all three of those teams were established in 1960. Dallas would begin playing the fall of 1960 in the NFL along with the Minnesota Vikings, who would start a year later. The Oakland Raiders, however, would begin their life in the American Football League as the eighth and final member of that charter member franchise. And finally, Jim Plunkett and O.J. Simpson get shout-outs this week as well. O.J. Simpson from the University of Southern California, fresh off of his Heisman Trophy win, is drafted number one overall by the Buffalo Bills. Meanwhile, a couple of years later, after the 1971 NFL draft, Jim Plunkett was drafted by the now New England Patriots. They were the Boston Patriots before, but now they're the New England Patriots, and they draft the Stanford quarterback number one overall. So that, that concludes this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. I surely did bring it to you. And until next time, so long, and have a great week, sports fans. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.